All right. Good morning. Thank you guys for joining us. I'm excited to be here. Can we give the worship team a hand real quick? Uh, That was just very, very good. Very, very, very good. Um, I almost feel like it said everything that I was going to say, so we don't even need to do this. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're going to do it. Uh, So uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 5 this morning. Um, I'm excited to have the opportunity to share what the Lord has placed in my heart uh, this morning. Most of you know me, but for those of you who don't, um, I'm Brandon. Uh, I'm sure most of you know me, but... I'm the pastor of worship and student ministries, and every now and then I get the opportunity to preach big church and not just do kids church. And I don't even do kids church, like student ministries, middle through high school is what I do. Um, but this is cool, and I, and I look forward to these Sundays. And I know that today is Family Worship Sunday, so we have all of our little ones in here with us this morning, and that's everyone's favorite Sunday, right? Everyone loves when we're all together. Um, But in all seriousness, we are grateful for these mornings because we do believe that it's important and good for us to worship together with our children and to hear from the Lord as a family. And then it also gives us, um, gives our children's ministry team a well-deserved break uh, just from their constant week-in and week-out service, which we're so thankful for. Um, And so if you're a little stressed out or if you're a little anxious this morning um, or if you're worried that you're going to have to sit here and your kids are going to be loud and disruptive, just take a breath because... It's okay. We know, what we're, we know what we're here for. We know what we've signed up for, right? So we're all good. And I'll do my best not to be super, super long-winded. I can't make any promises, but I'll try. Okay, so um, we'll jump right in. I remember as a kid, I would go to uh, the University of Louisville's basketball camp. It was something that I looked forward to um, as a kind of a middle schooler coming up in that area. And I remember watching UofL's basketball team with my grandfather. We would watch all the games, and I would try to learn all the players' names, and I would go outside and try to kind of imitate them and do what they did on TV, and I would go outside and practice in the, in the driveway and try my best to be like them and to be like them. And so when I would go to these camps, there would be times when the players would come out on the courts, and you would always know when they did because there would be a massive crowd of students and kids just r- rush them, and you would always know where to find them. And so we, you know, I would want to go see them too, but there's so many people there Um, that it felt like risking your life to kind of get in and get through the crowd a little bit, right? To get in and and see these players. And once you finally get in there, you realize how massive the individuals they are, number one. And then you also are just so overwhelmed. You're like, wow, I made it. I see them. Um, And then you go on about the camp, only to find out that at the end of the camp, they've set up a time with all the players and coaches at tables so that you can have an opportunity to be with them and not have to rush through crowds and everything. So it makes you feel like you risked your life for nothing, you know, (laughs) to get there. And not that we really risked our lives, but as a small, scrawny middle school Brandon, it felt like pretty intimidating to get into that crowd. So in our passage today, we're going to get a glimpse at a similar situation, only this encounter is one that actually does carry with it some pretty severe consequences. I joked about risking my life, but we're going to see where a crowd is formed, and there is some risk, um, some serious risk there. But before we kind of get into our main text, and before I even invite our scripture reader up to read our main passage, I just want to give us a little backstory of where we are in our, in our story with Jesus. So I'm going to read verses 21 through 24 for us this morning, just to set the stage for our time together. Um, so look at verses 21 through 24 with me in chapter 5. It says, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was there by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, 
My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live. So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. So they crossed the Sea of Galilee. Now back at the end of chapter 4, that was the sea that Jesus had calmed when the storm came about them, right? As they were making their way across the sea. And when they got to the other side, they met a man who was demon-possessed. And we spent the last two weeks looking at that story. And that man had a legion of demons in him, and he had been kept in the tombs, right? Because nobody could uh, help him. And so Jesus saves this man by casting out the demons and then tells him to go and uh, report to his own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for him and how he had had mercy on him. And so when Jesus crossed back over the lake again, again we find the same situation where a large crowd has gathered around him. And this is nearly the same scenario that we see in the beginning of Mark 4 when Jesus is standing in the boat and he has to kind of shove off a little bit into the lake because there's so many people around him. So we see almost a similar situation, almost identical actually. And so what we see is that one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet. And so at first this might not seem like a big deal, but I kind of want to Lean into that a little bit. So he was a synagogue leader, and synagogue leaders were responsible for supervising worship, running kind of a weekly school, and caring for the building itself. And many of these synagogue leaders, they had ties with Pharisees. And so it stands to reason that some of these synagogue leaders would probably have felt pressure not to follow Jesus at all. And so Jairus was at least a well-known, respected, probably wealthy public figure in this area And whether there was pressure or not, he makes his way to Jesus. And I'm sure the whole town by now has heard about Jesus and what he's been up to, and they've come from all over to see him. Now, in this commotion, Jairus, he's able to make his way to Jesus. And it doesn't tell us that this is exactly how it went, and I'm just explaining really kind of how I imagine it to go or how the scene played out. But since Jairus is a public figure and one that has to do with the synagogue and worship, like I said, he's probably uh, well-respected by the townspeople, um, has some money, maybe a little influential. And as he moves through the crowd, he's able to make his way through much easier, I imagine, than most people because people were probably allowing him to pass through because they're like, oh, he's an important person. Oh, he has to do with religion. Oh, he's a synagogue leader. Let's let him get through. But if you're anybody else in that crowd, you're not, you're not opening a way for anyone. Everybody else, it's almost nearly impossible for them to get through the crowd. But I just thought it was interesting that he was able to get to Jesus so quickly because everybody wants to get to him, yet he was able to. And so after that, he falls down at Jesus' feet and he, be, he begins to beg him to come and lay his hands on his daughter who has this illness. This, she's deathly ill. And so I want you to remember that part specifically where he falls down at Jesus' feet because we're going to touch on that later on. But it says that Jesus heads off and it's like immediately with Jairus to go to his daughter. And so the account of how Jesus handles the situation with Jairus and Jairus' daughter is actually what Pastor Brett is going to talk about next week. But we get a two for one in this story because there's two really cool things that happen intertwined together in this story, both of which display a significant interaction with Jesus. 
So in our time today, we're actually going to look at what's taking place just as they take off for Jairus' daughter. So before we go any further, I'm going to invite Seth up, and he's going to read for us our passage today. We're going to be reading together verses 25 through 34, and I believe that's on page 892 in the black seatback uh, Bibles around you. Um, so if you're willing and able, as he's making his way up, would you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? It actually starts on page 891, but it's okay. It goes into 892. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years had endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed her body, in her body that she was healed of her affliction. At once, Jesus realized in himself that power had gone out from him. He turned around, and the crowd said, Who touched my clothes? His disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you say, Who touched me? But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Daughter, he said to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. Thank you, Saints. You guys can have a seat. Let's go ahead and let's pray together before we dive into our text this morning. God, I'm grateful, Lord, for um, this time that we've already been able to spend in worship. I'm declaring a truth about you, the grace that you have, um, the love that you have. God, you went to the cross and made a way for us so that we could know you, so that we could experience freedom and peace and forgiveness and salvation, and that we could have um, your righteousness to make us holy. God, and I just thank you, Lord, for um, how good you are to us. Um, would you be with us now as we dive into this text? Would you clear our hearts and minds to receive from you this morning, and would you do what only you can in Jesus' name? Amen. Okay, so in trying to talk with uh, my wife, Grace, this, this week, and I even talked to the guys about it earlier this week, I was trying to talk about, just explain, you know, this story and what we were going to be talking about. And every time I did it, I got a little emotional. And so I just want to give fair warning that it might happen. I might, you know, get a little emotional. Um, but that's not, you know... That's not like surprising for people that know me. That happens kind of often. So just wanted to throw it out there. I'm going to try not to, but it might happen. This story is pretty beautiful. And it's one that uh, I kind of, I've known and I've read plenty of times, but I've not done like an in-depth study on it. And so I just really connected with it and it was really beautiful. So I'm praying that it does the same for you. Um, so Jesus, he heads off immediately for Jairus' daughter, and that large crowd, it follows him and it presses in around him. And Luke tells us that it's nearly crushing him. It's nearly crushing him. And so you think of those videos that you see of like celebrities trying to really go anywhere, and there's paparazzi and there's people pressing in all around them, and they've got bodyguards and bouncers trying to get everyone out of the way, and they're like knocking people over and getting them out of the way. That's like the disciples, like, wow, wow, get out of the way of Jesus. Um, and people are just pressing in around him. And so if you're claustrophobic, that's kind of a nightmare, right? And so all these people are pressing in. If you put yourself in the scene with Jesus, you're walking along trying to manage this crowd and to get to where you need to go. And as you're going and as you're fighting against this crowd, Jesus just stops walking. And you're pushing and you're trying to make your way and Jesus just stops moving. And so you're holding people back and you're looking around and what is he doing? And he's like, who touched me? <laughs> who touched me? 
If you're Jairus, you're thinking, what are you doing? Why are you stopping? We, we're on our way to save my daughter. She's dying. So you can see that there's a sense of urgency from, from Jairus, and it's totally understandable, but Jesus, he doesn't just do things haphazardly, right? He isn't stopping for anything insignificant. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Luke tells us that all the disciples, they denied touching Jesus. And then afterwards, it was Peter who said, Master, the crowds are, are hemming you in and they're pressing against you. So we're all like, it wasn't me. It's not me. And then they're like, how could you even say who's touching you? Have you seen this crowd around you? Literally anybody that could be touching you is touching you right now. How could you ask who touched me? And so he continues to scan the crowd, right? But before we go any further, let me just add that this wasn't like a surprise to Jesus. He wasn't um, like, stop, someone has robbed me of my power. <laughs> he wasn't surprised by that. He's fully aware of what's taking place. He's ultimately in control, and he could have kept on going. He could have kept on walking, allowing this miracle to take place and have no one be any wiser about what was happening, but that isn't what he allows to happen. So he scans the crowd, and Matthew tells us that he turned and he saw the woman. He saw her. So I like to think that he meets the eyes of this woman, and I imagine that it was a pretty surreal moment for her. And she knew that she had been found out, but it's not like she was trying to be malicious or deceitful. She had had this major issue. We have to remember that she was suffering from bleeding for 12 years. 12 years is a long time. With something that was seemingly incurable. She had spent every last cent on doctor after doctor trying to become well, uh, but nothing could heal her. And we're actually told that she got worse. She didn't get any better, but she got worse. And then she was left with that line that no one wants to hear. We've done all we can do. There's nothing more we can do. And they send her off. So you've got to think, if you had an issue like this, I would imagine that you would go through great lengths to get well again. Just even thinking about the effects of this illness for her, chronic anemia and, and weakness, right? Certainly unable to conceive, which in this culture was already shameful. She's dealing with all of that. But perhaps even worse for her was that under Levitical law, she would have been unclean, meaning anything that she touches. Anything that she would lay on or sit on would become unclean. Any person that touched her or that she touched would be considered unclean. If she was married, she may have well been divorced. Even more, she would have been unable to participate in any of the temple activities. She would be unable to bring any offerings. She'd be unable to confess her sins to the priest. She'd be socially excluded from almost all contact. So this must have led to terrible isolation, terrible loneliness, And it only compounds on her physical problems. She's lost everything. She's broken. She's poor. She's been discarded. She's worthless. So could you imagine the ro emotional roller coaster of depression, anxiety, anger, bitterness, deep loss, deep pain? But she knew that it, even if she touched Jesus, that she would make him unclean as well, technically. And so that was a terrifying thought for her. 
She was risking her life by even being present. But life had been super hard for her. So when she hears of Jesus, she believes that if anybody can help her, it's him. So she's moving towards him out of desperation. She's desperate for him. She thought, if I could only touch his robe, I can be well. I'll be made well. And so she meets eyes with Jesus. And then she does what? She flees. She takes off. She runs for her life. No. She falls at his feet, trembling in fear. And then she declares what had taken place, she, that she had been healed and how that healing came to be by touching Jesus. And she says that in front of everybody, in the middle of this crowd. Imagine living the life that she's lived and now being seen in her brokenness before everyone. No wonder she's trembling. No wonder she's afraid. And I don't know why. I feel like every time I've read this passage previously, I just read that part about her feeling, fear and trembling and equated it to the same as with any other person who is before Jesus, that it was a, uh, a reverent and awe, fear and trembling of like his power and who he was. And I think some of that was present, but I also think that there was a deep emotional fear because of where she was and who she was and the current circumstances that she finds herself in. So that fear and trembling, it makes a lot of sense. How much shame must she have felt? Imagine the crowd's reaction to her after hearing that this woman, this unclean woman, had touched Jesus. They're like famous rabbi that they're trying to get to, making him unclean in their eyes. And not only him, but every single person that she touched getting through the crowd to get to Jesus. Could you imagine their anger, their rage, how could you do that to us? No compassion. So the fear makes sense. The fear makes sense. She's fearing for her life at the moment, so she falls to her face because this really could be the end for her. But Jesus says, I don't know why it makes me so emotional. <laughs> he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me take a drink real quick. Clear this up. Okay, he says, daughter, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be healed from your affliction. So I'm guessing this is the first term of endearment that she's heard in a long time. And so it had to feel pretty good for her to be so afraid and to feel love in that moment. So Jesus' approach to this woman, it's simply amazing, right? We see so clearly who he is what he's about. And so I just want to quickly point out a couple things that we can gather about Jesus from here, uh, here in our text um, and how they apply to us. And these aren't like the biggest things in the world. These are just quick things that I wanted to draw from it. And the first thing here uh, is that he knows. He knows this woman. And not just in the sense that he knows that she's the one that touched him, but he knows who she is. He knows what she's done. He knows where she's been. He knows where she's going. He knows her name. We don't get her name, but he knows her name. He knows her. And we see accounts like this throughout scripture. Um, for example, like when Jesus speaks to the woman at the well and he's talking with her about the, the water of life that he has. The living water in the middle of their conversation comes this section um, where he reveals how much he knows. Look at John 4, it's going to be on the screens, verses 16 through 19. 
Go and call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I do not have a husband, she answered. You have said correctly when you said, I do not have a husband. Jesus said, for you have had five husbands, and the man that you, are now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Sir, the woman replied, I can see that you're a prophet. I can see that you know. I can see that you know. He knew that woman's circumstances. He knew who she was. He knew her story, and he knew what her life had become. Her testimony at the end of verse 39 in John 4, she says it plainly. She says, he told me everything I ever did. Pretty clearly, he knows. And our lives are no surprise to him. And if you look at Jesus, he never really seems to be in a hurry because he knows all things. The Bible tells us that he's holding all things together. He knows the number of hairs on our heads. And of course, he knows this woman and what had taken place in her life, which means for us that he knows us. He knows you. He knows you on the deepest levels. He knows the you that you don't even know. And he also knows the you that you don't want anyone else to know. He knows. And the next thing that's clear about Jesus is that he cares. That's so clear from this passage. He heals her physically, and because of that, it enables her to re-enter normal society. And not only that, he shows in front of the whole crowd that he is willing to accept her as she is. It did not matter that she was unclean. He was not embarrassed to be seen with her or to speak to her, and he takes the time to use this opportunity to teach the crowd He has such deep compassion. And there are verses all throughout the Gospels that sing of the compassion of Jesus. I mean, you think about when Jesus sees the multitudes of people and they're hungry and they have nothing, and it says clearly he had compassion for them. So many verses that speak of that, this compassion of Jesus. A lesson that he's teaching that crowd now about himself, but he also is teaching them about themselves and about us, how we ought to have that same compassion. See, Jesus could have healed the woman and kept on walking, couldn't he? He could have kept going to his original destination. Only he and the woman would have known about what had taken place, but he didn't do that. No, Jesus stopped what he was doing to acknowledge the results of this woman's faith, her complete and instantaneous healing. And she had taken nothing from him. She didn't take anything from him, but he had given everything to her. He had given her healing. And now she poured out this sad and miserable life story that was hers. And then she tells of how Jesus had done what all medical science, money, and efforts of man could not do. They couldn't do it. And Jesus made it clear how she was healed. In case anybody in the crowd was wondering, it was her faith that saved her, he said. He swept away any other thoughts by making the point completely clear. It wasn't because she grasped onto his clothing. It wasn't because of anything that, because of that physical touch. Jesus touched many people as he was walking through that place. The crowds were crushing him, it says. So it stands to reason that more people had touched him. But she touched him with this faith. She had faith. It was her relationship with Jesus by faith that made her whole, which brings us to that last thing I want to point out real quickly is that he saves. So I'm going to look a little closer at the statement that Jesus 
uses here in response to her when he says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I love the CSB translation here. Other translations say uh, your faith has healed you or your faith has made you well, which are both correct. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm just saying this way that it's worded, her faith saved her. And I feel like it's more than in a physical way here. The physical points to the eternal, right? She had been healed spiritually as well. This woman had nothing. She had never known peace, or at least not for 12 years. She had only known pain and anguish for those 12 years. And so for the kids that are in here, that's like being from first grade to senior year in high school. That entire time being terribly painful and alone. That's how long it was. Do you think that in that time she ever felt loved? Do you think she ever felt cared for? Up to this point, her life was bleak. But he gave her a title. He called her daughter. He accepted and he affirmed her faith. He brought peace to her soul. He showered her in love and in grace, and he saved her in every way. Psalm 40, verses 1 through 5 says this. It says, I waited for the Lord, and he turned to me and heard my cry for help. He brought me out of the muddy clay and set my feet on a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear, and they will trust in the Lord. How happy is anyone who has put his trust in the Lord and has not turned to the proud or to those who run after lies. My Lord God, you have done many things. Your wondrous works and plans for us, none can compare with you. If I were to report and speak on them, they would be more than I can be, or that can be told. And so, is this verse penned by David not a perfect picture of what this woman is going through with Jesus? And I feel like it is a perfect representation and picture of us, or at least it should be with us and Jesus. We all have ways to relate to this woman. Even at just the base level of the reality of sin and our existence, this incurable and, uh, and, and timeless and ageless disease, right, that nothing we can do to stop it is, is, is fathomable. It can't happen. Death is coming as a result of it, as a result of sin. You will not live forever here, no matter how much money you throw at it, no matter how healthy you are. No matter how in shape you are, everybody has an expiration date. Doesn't matter if you're rich, doesn't matter if you're poor. Right? When you see Jesus with your own eyes, will he look at you and say, daughter or son, your faith has saved you? See, the gospel is simple in that it's the only thing that has an answer to this. It's your faith in Christ, your belief in his perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his power over all of it through his resurrection. That's it. There's nothing else. So you've got to know that this is the heart of Christ. He desi his desire uh, is for you to be with him, and he has the same level of mercy and grace and forgiveness and love for you. But maybe there's something getting in the way. Even if you're a believer, maybe you're allowing some sin to define you. Maybe shame has attached itself to you and it's following you everywhere you go. It's made you feel how this woman felt, unlovable, unforgivable, unclean. Maybe you've even felt discarded. You tell yourself, one day, I'll get better. 
One day, I'll overcome this thing. One day, I'll get my act together, and one day, I'll be cleaned up and right with God. One day. This woman had done everything that she could. The doctors had done everything that they could. Similar to the people that we read about last week, they had done everything they could for that demon-possessed man. And you do hear this a lot. Just do better. You'd think, or, or, or just to be a, a better Christian, um, just to act right, to fix whatever's wrong, why don't you already? This idea kind of feeds itself into the church, I think, because there's a lot of correction in the Bible. We do get a lot of correction on how to live and how not to live and the things to put off and put on. But I think what happens is that we get fixated on those external things. I've got to clean myself up. I've got to do better. I've got to try harder. Follow the rules and I'll finally be free. But the hard reality is that you can't. Again, it's that picture we get from the woman on her face before Jesus, the picture of Jairus on his face before Jesus, someone who had everything and then someone who had nothing, neither of which mattered. You have to remember that he knows. He knows where you're at. He knows where you've been. Or where you've been. He knows where you're going. He knows what you've done, and he knows what you can't do. What Jesus is after is, is your heart, full faith, Full surrender, those are the answers. It is he who saves. It is his power that sanctifies and changes lives. It's not your efforts. Jesus saved this woman and changed her life forever. She wasn't worthy of it by any means, especially by the standard of their culture. But Jesus, he doesn't care about any of that. He showed her mercy. He showered her with love and with grace. There's nothing that you've done that can scare Jesus. There's no sin too big for him. Your life matters to the Lord. He stopped for this woman. You have to remember that he cares. He stopped in the middle of what he was doing to tend to her. He's not too busy, and your life is not too insignificant for him to just ignore you, right? He responds to faith, and there's no fear of rejection from him when you come to him in humble submission, and I get it, maybe you're afraid of what could come from being vulnerable with the Lord. Maybe you've been vulnerable with others in your life previously, and you've been burned for it. Maybe you feel like you can't trust anyone. I was thinking about this woman and her, and her probably issue with trust. And I remember this week as we were meeting with parents on Wednesday, I was talking with some of them about making room for grace in our parenting. And this will, this will tie in, you'll see. But my wife was reading a book and she read it and she was telling me about a section in it. Um, it was called Grace-Based Parenting and she brought this point to me and it made so much sense. And so I immediately thought of this section. The idea of leaving space for grace in your parenting. It sounds really simple, but it's hard because we want our kids to act right, do right, speak right, look right. And when they mess up, it's correction, discipline, frustration. And what it's doing is it's showing them that they'll never measure up. They're not allowed to mess up. If they do, they'll get punished. So what do they do? They stop trusting. They stop turning to you. Even if they confess and admit they messed up, they know they're going to get creamed for it. And don't get me wrong, discipline is good. Discipline is good. Kids, discipline is good. God disciplines us like a loving father, he says. So we know that discipline is good. But if we as parents 
are supposed to be the representation of Jesus to our kids, then are they going to want to go to him? Are they going to want to turn to him when they've messed up, when life is hard? Are they going to want to go there? Or is their only experience when going to their father not good, no matter what? See, there's a reason why some of us get major anxiety when our telephone rings, and it's our parents. Like, oh no, what did I do? What have I done now? Even as a 32-year-old, I still deal with that. It lines up with this woman, though, because why would this woman trust anyone after what she's been through? People have shunned her. They wrote her off. They discarded her. What we find out, though, after we finally run to Jesus like she did, we find that he's different. He surprises us that way. At some point, you realize in your brokenness and your desperation after your failed efforts over and over again, you realize that I need Jesus. You fall at his feet, you confess, and his response is always the same. It's always restoration. It's always forgiveness. Maybe you felt the sting of abandonment by your communities, friends, or even family. Maybe you're here now and you need just a merciful touch from God. Do you remember that you have been called son or daughter by your heavenly father to remember that he saved you, that he sealed you, that he guards you, and that he keeps you? To feel the warmth of his love and grace. Sometimes we get so caught up in trying to be the best Christians that we can be or to look like we have it all together, but we're broken and we forget that we couldn't fix ourselves in the first place. And it's always been him. So this story doesn't mean that you'll always just be healed, right? It does show us, however, that he is the only one worth running to in times of pain and heartache and isolation and loneliness. We run to him and we remember these truths that we have been called by him, that you have been forgiven by him, that you are loved by him. In spite of the world, whatever the world may say about you, or maybe what you will even say about yourself, he is the only one who can, who can declare who you are, that you are a child of his, that you are spotless before the king, that you have been made holy and set apart because of the blood that he shed on the cross for you, that it's his righteousness that is now yours in him. So if I could leave you with one lasting thought, if you leave here with one thing that you remember, it's that Jesus, as big as he is, as strong as he is, as mighty as he is, and as just as he is, is full of compassion and full of grace. And it's amazing. It's overwhelming, honestly. And I really wrestled with how to wrap this whole section up because I wanted to leave us with some kind of big and compelling elaborate, deep point. But I just couldn't get away from the personal nature of this story and the simplicity that we see in it. And I really just wanted us to connect with this woman and her encounter with Jesus on an emotional level. For us to empathize with her and then to share in the joy of her salvation. To marvel at the grace of Jesus. So as we close, if you are here and you're in any of the places that we kind of talked about moments ago, if you're here and you've first off just never surrendered your life to Jesus, the invitation is for you. The foot of the cross is, is wide open for you to bow before Jesus and to declare to him your faith, to confess to him now that you believe in him. Because he knows where you've been, he knows what you've done, but he cares for you and he will gladly save you. Your life will forever be changed because you will have the hope of eternity in Christ.
But if you're a believer and you're in any of those places as well, the call is very similar to make your way to Jesus. Like the woman fighting her way through the crowd to make her way to Jesus, make your way back. Somewhere along the way you got distracted or maybe misled and now you feel like you can't come back. You feel the shame. You feel like, like, like you're not good enough anymore or that he's somehow like super upset with you and he won't accept you anymore. The Bible tells us that his mercy is new every morning. That his forgiveness and grace are freely available to you. Don't allow whatever it is that has been keeping you away from him to stand any longer. Surrender it to him. And so for all of us, what I'd like for us to do as we go into this time of reflection is just to reflect on the grace of Jesus this morning. To take some time to sit in awe of this forgiveness. I still often think, how could you love me? How could you forgive me? Still. Now. That's such grace. We sang about, we don't have a context for it. We don't understand it fully. But he gives it to us. So let's spend time with him now, thanking him for it, sitting in awe of it, wrestling with it. And after we spend some time with it, we'll close in prayer together.